been. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to an Old Testament book, the book of First Chronicles. Not First Corinthians, but First Chronicles. And go with me to chapter 13. While you're doing that, look around you. Maybe if you, if you notice that you have a friend or somebody who normally would be here on, a, on, a, on an evening service is not here tonight, maybe make a note of that and send them a quick message and say, hey, we missed you at church and sure like to see you here for the revival meetings and encourage them to be there for that. First Chronicles 13, and if you're a guest or visitor tonight, I'm going to ask our members to look around and uh, maybe somebody only has a New Testament or doesn't know where First Chronicles is, you, you just be a kind, loving church member and help them find their way and sit with them and help them find their place tonight. That would be a wonderful thing, First Chronicles 13. Verse 1, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and the Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not of it at all in the days of Saul. You might want to write in your margin of your Bible, for 40 years Saul reigned. We know that from Acts 13. For 40 years Saul reigned, and they did not consult from the ark of God. And verse 4 says, And all the congregation said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entry end of Hemoth, to bring the ark of God from Kerjatherim. And David went up in all Israel to Baal, that is to Kerjatherim, which belongeth to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God, the Lord, and that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and with singing, and with harps, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came out of, and when they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, his name is also called Nashon, of, of, uh, Nashon or Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Wherefore, that place is called Para-Uzzah to this day, or the breach of Uzzah. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark of God ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obadidim the Gittite. Now, you might want to write, you marge your Bible, Obadidim was a Levite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obadidim in the house for three months. And notice this, and the Lord blessed the house of Obadidim and all that he had. I call your attention tonight, God, there's so many things here, but I call your attention tonight to verse 7. They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And the Bible says in verse 9, when they came into the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumble. And then we read in verse 14, the ark of God remained with the family of Obadidim in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obadidim and all that he had. I want to preach a message tonight entitled Red Light, Green Light. Red Light, 
green light. Father, bless your word tonight. Help me in my infirmity and weakness, Lord, just to preach, God, to your people and to feed the flock of God, which is among us. Bless our time together, we pray. May God just do a great work, Lord, that will glory, glorify you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're back in a series. I've been kind of out of the series for a little bit here. We're back in our series from 2 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel, if you would, 1 Chronicles here. That's on the life of David. And very basically, it's on the theme of um, the king is come. And it's about David being on the throne there and being used of God. And uh, we see some things here tonight just for time that uh, as we, we study through David, perhaps he's the most beloved and most colorful characters of the Bible. I love studying about David. I love reading through David. I just happen to be in my part of my devotions right now where I'm reading through David again and just excited about that. And uh, we must remember always that David was called a man after God's own heart. We must remember that David served his own generation by the will of God. Now, here's the thought I want to give you tonight. David was a shepherd king, but he was also a, sh- a shepherd kid, but he became a shepherd king. David was a fighting man, but David also was a faith man. David was a man of war, but he was also a man of worship. Tonight we're looking at the Ark of God, a very important uh, article there that was part of the whole life of the of the Israelites. And in this Ark of God, we'll see this evening repeated over and over again. The Ark of God was a was a symbolic means that God gave to Israel to remind them and to press upon them the importance of the presence of God. Tonight we're looking at a passage. As we look at verses seven and nine, we're looking at a passage or an example that shows us that. Doing the right thing in the wrong way leads to a bad result. Doing the right things in the wrong way leads to a bad result. We're looking at this thought of red light, green light. Now, I, you're asking, how did you come up with the idea? I don't know. I was just praying. I said, Lord, I, need a, I just need a right, right kind of title here tonight. And the Lord just kind of worked in my heart over the last three, four weeks. And just as I prayed and meditated on this passage, and, and the Lord just gave me the idea of red light, green light. So some of you are probably like me. Your brain cells have kind of deteriorated over the years as you've gotten older. And maybe you don't remember playing red light, green light. Or maybe you come from a country where you didn't play that. So I asked for four very scientific volunteers that were handpicked by Brother Vaughn. And these four scientific volunteers are going to come to help me do a quick demonstration of what red light, green light come. Now, are you volunteers ready? Are you guys ready? All right, you come. The ladies are more ready than the boys, okay? That's always the case, amen? You volunteers come. We're going to show our congregation how, uh, how what is red light, green light. And here's what we're going to do. It's a small area here. So I'm going to put the ladies over here. Ladies, if you'll go over here. Boys, you stay right over there. You two boys stay right over there, okay? And the ladies go over there. I'm going to help you stand up, okay? Now, we, we don't have a lot of room here, so I don't want you knocking each other down. Why don't you stand over here just a little bit right here, Eli, okay? Instead of part. Now, let me explain the game just in case if you're not familiar with it. Now, that was a game. I remember playing it. I don't remember a lot about playing it, but I remember playing this game called Red Light, Green Light. And Red Light, Green Light basically was you'd stand. You'd have a whole bunch of kids standing together. Of course, we don't have a big big room here, so we can't do that. They'd stand together, and the teacher would stand in the middle of the yard, and they'd say something like this, Green Light. And when I say Green Light, what are you supposed to do? Run. Green Red Light. You stop, okay? And so they would just say, Red, Green Light. They'd run. So Green Light. You guys going to make the other side. Green Light. Red light, they're supposed to stop. So they don't keep going. Jake, you, you messed up. You, stuck, you, you kept going, okay? You learned that from your dad, all right? Okay, let's do it all over again, okay? All right? Red light, green light, all right? Green light. Red light. Red light. Red light. Green light. Red light. Green light. Green light. Green light. Green light. Green light. So that's how they play. Now, I think they threw yellow light in there, too. But, uh, but that's how they do it. Let's do it one more time. Green light. Red light, 
Red light. That's like Brother Hal came in, you know. green light. Let's give a big hand to our volunteers, all right? Good job. You guys did a good job. Hey, Brother Hal, by the way, is, is, is it your birthday this week? On Tuesday. Tuesday. It's his birthday. Okay, we're going to take a special offering, okay? Uh, what here's going to do, get all the money. Get all the money from Brother Hal. He'll give it to him tonight. Amen? All right, good. All right, good. Red light, green light. Get your Bibles open tonight. Notice a few things tonight about this passage of Scripture. First of all, notice in verses 1 to 4, we see David's fervent ambition. I, I like the fact when his brother Denny started off our service tonight and just relaying about the, the victims of the fire, he asked this question, what is the most important thing to you? That's a good question to ask. If everything was to go up in smoke, what is the most important thing to you? Now, I want you to understand where David's at now. David's 37 years old. Hey, 37, you're at the prime of life. I mean, things are going well at 37. Your health is going well. You can still fight a few battles. And David now has gone from being a poor shepherd boy but back 21 years before in the shepherd fields. He was the youngest of his family. He's now risen to prominence. He's the number one man in all of Israel. He's, the kingdom's united. The house of Judah's united around him. The house of Israel's united around him. He's ascended from being a shepherd now to the king. All the Riches are at his disposal. He can make carte blanche decisions about people and about things. He's got the mightiest military in all the world. What do you think is the most important thing about David? What do you think matters most to David? Is it his army? Is it his wife? Is it about the fact that he's got all these riches? Is it that he wants to conquer most kingdoms? Those are all things that are important. But as we read verses 1 to 4, the most important thing to David as a man of war, as things had settled down, is that he wanted the presence of God back in the congregation of Israel. He had a united kingdom and he recognized as he was having his devotion, it had been a long time since God's presence had been in the city. And there as he had conquered that city of Jebus, that city in, uh, that's now called Jerusalem, he took over that city and made his capital there on the hill. It was important to him that, that, that they bring back the presence of God. Now for you to have a great appreciation where David is at from the beginning to the end of this, later on tonight, take your Bible and read Psalms 132. Psalms 132 32 is the recording of David's heart concerning all this and just the challenges about bringing the ark of God back. He talks about his afflictions and how and, and then how God uses him to bring the ark of God. back. It's a wonderful, touching devotion. Kind of helps you understand Psalms 132 a little bit better as we read this passage of scripture. Also, second Samuel chapter six. But some things we want to notice tonight was this United Kingdom and this ambition of David. We want to consider some things about the ark of God. First of all, would you notice the essential concept? God designed way back with Moses back in Exodus 25 that the concept of the ark would give them representation. It would be a means, a symbolic means that would always remind them about the presence of God. Now, we must remind ourselves tonight that God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, I'm very, I'm very conscious and careful that we don't put relics and images up, that we rely on the images and so forth. There we forget about the fact that God is the spirit. OK, and so, you know, and, and that's there's nothing you know about the fact that if a church chooses to do so. I have some Baptist friends that may have a, a large cross in the back of their auditorium. I'm not against it. I'm just not. I'm kind of at the place right now where I feel like I want to do that because I don't want to bring the idea that we're worshiping the, the relic itself versus the, cro- the Christ who died on the cross. But I want to understand something that David had a heart desire for that. 
that. But going back to the days of Moses, you have to remember Israel is coming out of 400 plus years of idolatrous worship. They've been down in Egypt. They've been exposed to multiple numbers of God. Down in Egypt, they, they, they worship the calf. Down in Egypt, they worship the fly. Down in Egypt, they worship the grasshoppers. Down in Egypt, they worship the frogs. Down in Egypt, they worship the Nile River. I mean, you go on and on and on as you look at all the plagues that God sent upon them. They worship the, the Pharaoh himself. So they're coming out of this, this mindset for 400 years where they, where they identified worship with an object. Now, God wasn't reducing himself to an object, but he was trying to teach them some things as we go through this tonight to help them understand the importance of the presence of God. He wanted them to sense at all times his presence. That's why when we read about how God leads them out of Egypt, we see this wonderful picture about the, uh, about the pillar of cloud by day and the, and, the, and the fire by night, how God led them there, and uh, just the presence of God that kept Egypt away from them, and they were safe with that presence. And so God gave them what we would call the ark. Now, as we consider that, notice in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. This is what God said about the ark as he gave instructions about the construction of the ark and its importance as a concept. He gave them the ark as a symbol or figure of his very presence, which would meet with his people. And this is what Exodus 25 verse 22 says. And there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. From the moment God made man. God made very important the, the, the made, made it a high priority that His presence would be among us. That's why it's so it's so heartbreaking. After Adam and Eve sinned, and in Genesis chapter three, God is walking in the midst of the cool of the garden. That's something God did all the time. But there was something was wrong with that. God was there, but Adam wasn't there, and Adam was missing. And God knew Adam was missing. God saw from above that Adam had sinned, and His cry to Adam was, "Adam, where art thou?" And we must remind ourselves that God's presence is there, and as God's presence is there, can you imagine? If you've identified the place at your kitchen table or for some of you commute early to work, maybe your cubicle at five o'clock in the morning or some of us in our offices somewhere. Can you imagine identifying an area where you said, Lord, this is where I'm going to meet with you. This is where I'm going to read my Bible and pray. Can you imagine that place being vacant and absent? You're not there, but you feel OK with it, except for the fact that you told God you're going to meet there and God's ready to meet with you. And he's saying, Alan, where art thou? Alan, where art thou? How come you're not here? I'm waiting for you. And that's the very, very, the, the very example I want us to understand tonight that we see this essential concept. God wanted his people individually as corporately to sense his presence. We need God's presence and power for effective service and victorious living. That's what I was telling somebody the other day. God had led in our hearts to start way back in 2004. Every spring, every fall, we would just have a time to recharge the church, a time of revival, that we would just be reminded we need the presence and the power of God in our lives. We could never afford to get to the place we take for granted God's power or God's presence. Listen, I need God's power today more than I needed it last Sunday. And I need God's power and presence more right now than I needed five years ago. We need God's power and presence. And then just like in David, there should be a desire and ambition in our heart to want God's presence. And so we see the essential concept. Our highest priority is that we want God's presence moment by moment. You hear me share this poem all the time. It's precious to me. I met God in the morning while my day was at its best. And His presence came like glory with His sunrise on my breast. All day long His presence lingered. All day long He stayed with me. And we sailed in perfect calmness or a very troubled sea. Other ships were blown and battered. Other ships were sore distressed. But the winds that seemed to drive them brought to me a peace and rest. 
Then I thought of other mornings with a keen remorse of mine, how I too left the blessing of his presence far behind. But now I've learned the secret against many a troubled days. If I meet God in the morning, I can have him all the day. We need God's presence tonight. Oh, if you just get one thing tonight, you just have a hunger in your heart. Say, Lord, I need your presence. I need your power. We see the, the essential concept. But notice now, let's look at the ark. I want you to consider the ark, and I'm not going to need all the dimension things because we don't have time. But I want you to notice here tonight, I want you to notice the enclosed contents of the ark. It wasn't the ark itself, it was the contents within the ark that were very important. Now, you can get a little bit of this by reading through Exodus, but I, Bobby, if you want to get a short narrative, go over there to Hebrews chapter 9, as Hebrews 9 gives you an identification of those contents. Let me describe them to you very quickly. The first item we call our attention to that was inside of that ark was the what we call the two stones or two tablets. Those were the two stones or tablets upon God's finger. With God's finger, he wrote the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments were a representation of the law. The Ten Commandments, or if you would, those two tablets, were a reminder of Christ. They were symbolic of Christ, who is the living word. As the commandments of God sitting inside that ark, that reminds us of the law, which speaks against us. It shows us accused and guilty before God. It shows us that all of us fall short of the law, that the law cannot save us. We fall short of the law. The law identifies our sins and who we are. So we see these two tablets of stone, which represents Christ, the living word, and the fact that we fall short of the law. The second content we see is a pot of manna. Now, this pot of manna represents what God gave them beginning back, I think, if my memory serves right, Exodus chapter 15, where they were looking for food to eat, and God promised them that every day for six days a week, Monday through Saturday, God would, excuse me, Sunday would be for us, Sunday through Friday, excuse me, because Saturday was their, their Sabbath day. Sunday through Friday, God would leave these small, round, white things that, that tasted like coriander seed or like the taste of honey. Every day they would gather it. It would be all over, like the dew frost, all over the, all over the desert sand. And the people were to go out and gather this and to keep it. And uh, during along the way, God faithfully took care of them for 40 years. Now, the man itself is a representation of Christ, who's the living bread. We read about that in John chapter 6. It's a reminder to us that Christ is the living bread. We must take all of Christ in order to be saved. And so the taking up of the manna was a representation of the bread of life there. It was a picture of the miraculous wafers of God. And they're a picture of the deity of Christ, that he's 100% God, sinless and without, with, without any flaws in his life there. And so we have this pot of manna which speaks about the bread of life. We have the two tablets of stone which speak about the law and the fact that we fall short of God, God's glory because of that. And then we see an interesting thing. We see this branch that's in there, a smoothened out branch that's called a rod. In fact, it was specifically called Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod, if you would, if you go back to Numbers chapter 16, I believe, or Numbers chapter 17, authenticated the right man of God from the false man of God. Because remember, there was a, there was a, there was a rebellion that ensued in number 16 of Nadab and Abihu and those guys there and a bunch of these guys that about three, 250 the, of the elite men of the congregation that rebelled against Moses and so God had to do an authentication to, to show the people of Israel who, who his blessing and approval was on and he took the rods of all those men as well as Aaron's rod and the one that came to life that started the budding out was the one that gave authentication and so Aaron's rod was the only one that, that, that came to life but the Aaron's rod also speaks to something else as the manna speaks about 
the living bread. As the commandments speak about the living word, we look at the rod that budded, and the rod is such a perfect, wonderful picture of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God took something that was dead and made it alive. It's such a beautiful picture and all that. But there's something else here. Those were the three elements that were inside, the contents inside the ark. But covering all of that inside there was a, was a golden, what was called the golden mercy seat. Now gold, wherever you read that about in the, in the, in the tabernacle, was a picture of the glory of God and the wonderfulness of God and the fact that God is great and sovereign and powerful and almighty there. And so we see this golden mercy seat that covered all that. Once a year, the priest would go inside there and we'd go inside there with a basin of blood with hyssop in his hand and we'd go in there perhaps like on, on the Passover day and we'd dip the hyssop in there and he would go there to that, to that mercy seat and he would sprinkle blood upon that mercy seat and upon the contents of the altar. As he did so, it gave representation that he went there on behalf of the sins of all the people. He went there to give a, an acceptable sacrifice. An animal that was innocent was slain. Its blood was taken. It was sprinkled on that mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. Two cherubims would overlook that in humility and uh, over that. And it represented God accepting the, the, that God's demands for sin were satisfied against his people because a blood sacrifice was given. And all of that, as we look at that, the contents there, the high priest going in is a picture of Jesus giving his life on our behalf because Christ, unlike the high priest of Israel, he had to offer sacrifice for his sins. Christ didn't need to die for his sins because Jesus had no sins. Jesus is sinless, but he died for sins of all the world. You read about that in Hebrews chapter 5. And so Christ gives his life for all of us there. And the entire ceremony is symbolic of Christ's atoning death for every sinner. And that we must have faith in what Christ accomplished for us. So when we look at all that, the enclosed content speaks so wonderfully about Christ and giving his life for us. And speaks about the presence of God. And God says, and as they did so, the Shekinah glory of God would constantly come down upon them. You've got to read through your Old Testament. Just to appreciate that and see that there's such a wonderful, wonderful picture. But we see something else. We see the essential concept. The ark of God was a picture of the presence of God. The contents, all the contents speak of Christ in his glory, Christ in his death, Christ in his offering for our sin. But we see something else. In verses 1 to 4, we see David and his, and his craving. David had an earnest craving. Please understand as we get to First Chronicles 13 and 2 Samuel 6. The ark of God back in 1 Samuel 4 had been taken by the Philistines. They took it. They stole it. They took it back to their cities. God afflicted them when it was there. God sorely afflicted them. They said, what are we going to do with this ark of God? It's not doing us any good. They thought they could take that ark and add it to their gods, thinking they would give them more favor. And instead, God showed them they were wrong. They didn't want anything to do with the ark of God. So they sent it back to the, children, the, the, men of, uh, the people of Israel. And the Bible tells us they put it on this new card in 1 Samuel 6. On this new card, they sent it with two milch kind. And they sent it walking up a road over up to the men of Bishemish. The men of Bishemish were excited. They were, they were, they were, uh, they were men of Israel who were excited about that, except one thing is, those men looked in, they, they, as the ark came up, they went and peeked inside and looked inside the contents there as they did so, which they were not supposed to do because only the high priest could look at that. As they did so, 50,700 men were slain immediately by God. Just showing these people that God takes very seriously the importance of having His presence, but being in His presence in the right way. And so as a result, they didn't know what to do, so they, they took the Ark of God, and they took it to the nearby city. They told the men of Kerjathrim, which is where we're at right now, they said, you take the Ark of God, you put it inside your home. And so now, for almost a 100 years now, for almost a 100 years, the Ark of God, going back from 1 Samuel 6, the Ark of God, 
God, the presence of the Lord has been in the house of a man by the name of Abinadab. Almost a hundred years. I asked to go visit Thomas Spurgeon's Baptist Tabernacle in Auckland, New Zealand. I said, Brother Brinkman, if you can arrange it, I'd like to see that place where Thomas Spurgeon preached. He was the son of Charles Spurgeon. At that time, when they called him to be the pastor of that Baptist Tabernacle, which was named after the Baptist Tabernacle in London, England, after Charles Spurgeon. Thomas went as a 24-year-old man, full of the Holy Spirit of God. As he went there, he took that church, and immediately the church started growing. A town of 6,000 people, they ran 10% of the town were in that church on a regular basis. Just to give you perspective, if you in today's economy, if you have 1% of your town in the church, you're doing pretty good there, okay? He had 10% of the city of Auckland, and great things were going there. A man by the name of Laidlaw, who, who was a great Christian businessman, a man by the name of Laidlaw got saved. If you go throughout all of, all of Auckland, New Zealand, you'll find Laidlaw's uh, his business called the Farmer's, uh, the farmer's Market. It's called the Farmers. It's just like a department store, all kind of like a Kmart type of thing or a Walmart type of thing, all over all over uh, New Zealand there. And just a very prosperous man who was a great man of God who loved the Lord and did everything he could as a Christian businessman to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was among many, many prestigious Christians who, who became part of the church. And for seven years, Thomas Spurgeon preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church grew. They had many, many big days. They was just very well known in that part of the world as preaching the word of God. Thomas Spurgeon went out, of course, as time went along, Eventually, apostasy set into that church. I went to that church and took a walk with it. It's amazing, the architecture that still is in existence right now that goes back to back in the 1800s when they built that building. And uh, just going through and looking at the different buildings, we took a whole bunch of pictures and things. But, you know, the thing that bothered me the most was the fact that as I asked them about who met there, and they have several different congregations, what they did, and they've gone from preaching the pure gospel of the Word of God to becoming a social church, where basically it's a social gospel, doing this and doing that, but nobody getting saved, no lives being impacted there. As we got there, I looked at the pulpit, which was about a quarter of the size of the pulpit we have here, and basically I thought, as I stood behind the pulpit there, I thought, my, I wonder what happened to the presence of God, where the presence of God went, the glory of God. And that wasn't so of David. David looked at this, the, this situation, he was now set Seven years on the throne, and now he's realizing here, listen, we can't continue, I can't continue as king without the presence of God there. And he had a great desire for getting God's presence there. He had a fervent attitude. He wanted, the desire was, he said in verse 3, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not of it at the days of Saul. And all the congregation said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all of Israel. Now, if I had any contention about anything in verses 1 to 4, it's just as one thing. The Bible says in verse 1, he consulted with the, with the, 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 the captains and thousands and hundreds and leaders. He consulted with the congregation and he asked them, he said, well, if it seems good to you, should we bring back the ark of God? I would just tell you this. You don't need to consult with somebody else or get a church business meeting to consult about bringing the presence of God. You just need the presence of God. Amen. You don't need to go to church business meeting type of attitude like that. That's what they were doing there. And uh, maybe some people want to do that, but that's just not what you do. And when it comes time, we realize we need revival. We don't vote about a revival. We pray for a revival. We get involved with the revival. We get our hearts into revival. Listen, the best time for you to get ready now for revival is right now in this service. Get your hearts ready. Get into it. Get an amen attitude. Say, God, let's, let's get the revival now. Lord, cleanse us and search us and know our hearts, oh God. And so that was David's heart. David's had, David had an earnest ambition and desire for God's power. Now, I want to ask you a question tonight. How fervent, how hungry are we? How fervent is our ambition for God's presence in our church? Do we just want to be a church that has buildings but no power? 
Do we want to be Sunday school ministry that has people but no power? Do we just want to have a program but no power? Do we want preaching but no power? Do we want to win souls but there's no power? I'm saying tonight, listen, you take the power out, we're gone. We're finished. The candlestick's gone. And so David had a right ambition. In God's presence, I wonder tonight, how long has it been since you've opened your Bible, you pray, and you've seen answers to prayer? I'm asking you tonight, when was the last time you knew that God's presence was inside your devotion? We see David's fervent ambition. Let's move along very quickly tonight. Notice in verses 7 to 12, a second thing this evening. I thank God for David's fervent ambition. But notice as we get to verses 7 to 12, we see David's failed attempt. Now, David had a right heart. Notice the first thing in verses 5 to 6, we see a proper multitude. So the congregation of all of Israel, all the leaders, everyone said, yeah, that's a good thing, David. Let's go back down to Kerjatharim, which was many miles away, and let's bring back the Ark of God. Now, they had all the Old Testament scriptures with them. They knew what they were supposed to do. And it's kind of interesting as you read the scriptures here. In verse 2, we have a description of everybody he calls together, basically called throughout all the land. He sent an edict throughout all the land that everyone was to come together and join them and meet them down at Kerjatharim. And as they did so, there would be a, there'd be a large multitude of people that would go forward from Kerjatharim all the way up to Jerusalem. Would you notice in verse 2, if you'll underline this tonight, he said, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel. And notice this, with them also to the priests and the Levites, which are in their cities and their suburbs. Now, many of the Levites were living in, in living what we call the cities of refuge at that time, and they were in other places. But he said, let's get everybody together. We don't want anybody disconnected. He calls for a proper multitude. So the Bible says in verse 5, so David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the enter of Hemath, to bring the ark of God from Kerjathrim. And David went up and all Israel to Baalah, that is to Kerjathrim, which belongeth to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God of the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. Now, all I'm trying to say to you tonight is we think about this proper multitude. It was a big event and God wanted all, David wanted all of God's people to be there. May I say this tonight? That's why we make church attendance a big thing. I pray tonight that God's presence be here. I believe he's here tonight. How do you know he's here? I don't feel it. Yeah, he's here because he told us we're two or more gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of him. The problem is not whether God is there. The problem is whether or not are we there. The problem is not about God. God's here. And listen, it ought to be a big thing that we just make a big promotion. Hey, come to church. God's going to be here tonight. God's here all the time. We need to make a big deal that the fact we want all the congregation, we want everyone to come to church because God is here. And that's what that, that was David's heart. David's heart was to have all the congregation. That's why we read in the Psalms, he calls them the great congregation. He calls them the people of God that assemble together. We make church attendance a big thing. Don't be far away when it's time to meet God. Don't be missing when it's time to meet with God. We see a proper multitude. But notice in verses 7 and 9, we see a precarious method. Now, David's gathered all the people together. They're down at Kerjatharim. They go to the house of Abinadab. And they're in the house of Abinadab. They know the ark of God is there. Everybody knows what's going on there. They know about the contents inside of there. They know all of that. They know what they're supposed to do. But he does something very interesting. As we look at the method David employed, there's two things that stand out tonight. Number one, I want you to consider the hauling of the ark of God. The transportation of the ark of God. The hauling. Notice it says here in verse 7, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ohio drove the cart. 
Now, if you're not familiar with your Bible, we need to go back here to 1 Samuel 6 to understand this concept of the new cart. Because in 1 Samuel 6, that's exactly what the Philistines did. The Philistines, they didn't want the ark of God in their midst. They wanted the ark of God out, so they made a new cart, thinking that it's because it's the... The representation, the symbol, the relic of the Ark of God that we need to send it out on a new cart. Now, when you read about the Philistines in the Bible, I told our young people this the other night. The Philistines are always a picture of the world. And the Philistines chose a method. They chose a new cart. A new cart is a picture of worldly methods. Now, notice in your Bibles tonight, Numbers 4.15. God made very clear. The Levites knew this. This was part of their job description. This was part of their training. If you were a Levite, you descended from the, from Aaron, you knew what your job job description was. All of Israel knew what their job description was. Even though there had been a 100 year gap and they had not done this, they knew what this was. And we have Numbers 4.15 which says this, when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Koash shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. Now, notice that there, lest they touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Koath and the tabernacle of the congregation. Here's what God's requirement was. God's requirement, very simply, was that the Levites were to bear the ark of God. God wants us to bear his presence. God wants each of us to individually experience and to have his presence. It was very specific. In Numbers 4.15, God said the Levites were to bear the ark of God. There was only one method God gave them. It was not to be on a new cart. A new cart was a worldly method. A new cart was a Philistine mi- uh, mindset there. And so God wanted to, them to sense the weight or importance of the presence of God in life. So the Philistines used a new cart. Somehow, David, along the way, he listened to somebody else's suggestion. And the Bible says they carried the ark of God in a new cart. You see, sometimes a new cart, oh, every now and then, remanifests itself when the presence of God has been missing for a period of time. When God's presence is not there, when an Ichabod has has been present there. And they have the sense, well, we need to get back God's presence. We need to get some life into the church. We need to get some enthusiasm back. We need to get the crowd back in. We need to get things back going again. So let's make us a new cart by which we can bring forth the presence of God. And listen tonight, sometimes people resort to new methods because it's, they're convenient. People want convenience. We live in a time and an age people want convenience. People will sometimes resort to new methods because they're contemporary. They want it to fit the time. They want it to match what they're doing with the time. Uh, sometimes people resort to new methods because they're carnal crowd pleasers. Listen, I want to tell you tonight, brother, sister in Christ, and I say this with love to you. We cannot resort to new carts for the worship of God. We cannot resort to new carts for the work of God. New carts are wrong methods. Wrong methods trying to do the right thing. New carts are trying to bring God's presence on a wrong way and a wrong platform. Listen, today, worship and music that is entertaining instead of evangelizing and exhorting are, are new carts. Bible translations that water down the word of God are a new card. The resurgence of Calvinism as a doctrine of intellectualism and limiting the blood atonement of Christ is a new card. This morning I was preaching from Acts chapter 19. I was telling Brother Denny just a few moments ago. I was preaching from Acts 19. And as you you know, Acts 19, it... It talks about Paul's second entry into Ephesus. and the second entry, he found these 12 disciples. And he asked his first question, have you received the Holy Spirit of God? Now, whenever you meet somebody, there's a lot of things to talk about. The number one thing you need to ask that person is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you saved, okay? You need to ask them if they're saved. And if they are saved, then you ask them, what kind of baptism you had? So did, Paul did that. Paul went through there. And they acknowledged that all they knew, they knew nothing about the Holy Spirit of God. And they, all they knew about was John's baptism. So they didn't have a full revelation. Number one, they weren't saved. Number two, they needed to get saved. 
saved. Number three, they need to get scripture baptized. John's baptism was invalid. John's baptism was not a Bible baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was not a re- baptism representing their identification with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I, if you were here this morning, I explained that today. Well, I explained that today and I explained the fact that baptism doesn't save us. Good works don't save us. We're saved by grace through faith alone Jesus Christ. And I knew this was going to happen because we have a lot of different, a wide, diverse crowd of people that come Sunday mornings who are not members of our church, but think they're members of our church. And so I had to say some things today, not in a mean or, de- or, de- or a defensive way, but I had to say some things tonight just to declare the doctrine of the Word of God. Because the Bible says, preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all doctrine and long-suffering, okay? And I don't care what the contemporary methods say today. Well, let's give a cool message. Well, you go and get a cool message. I'm giving a Christ message. I don't care if the, the, new, the new evangelical crowd says, no, we need to, we need to reach down. We need to get down to the level of people. Well, you go ahead and get down to the level of people. I'm going to meet them on their level when I meet them one on one. But when I declare the word of God, I'm going to bring them up to the level of Jesus Christ. And so I knew it was going to happen as I was shaking hands. This, uh, some person came up to me and made a beeline to me and he came up to me and says, well, you need to be very careful about what you're preaching. And I just kind of anticipated this was going to come. This happens every week. You know, just it's, it's nothing new under the sun. So you need to be very careful about what you're preaching there and so forth. And the person had this idea that I was advocating that uh, baptism was 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 uh, was good works. We're going back to good works. And in order to good works, you need to be saved. I said, sir, that is not what I said. In fact, where you were sitting, that's the point where you woke up and you didn't hear anything I said. Literally just woke up at that time. He was like this the whole time. And I explained to him, I said, here's what baptism is. I said, baptism, if you study Acts chapter 2 very carefully, baptism not only is an identification with Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, it is also the gateway to the local church. Now, if you study the passage very carefully and exegete it very carefully in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 45, you understand that what you're getting into, you're getting baptized into a church and you're agreeing with the doctrine of that church. I said, listen, there's a lot of people that have, there's several ways that people come to our church. They come, someone come with an alien baptism. They come with a, with a pedo baptism where they're, ba- baptized as a baby or they were sprinkled or they were they, you know, whatever they had water poured on them they come from a different church back in fact we're going to be baptizing someone who just understood they had the wrong baptism and they need to get it corrected they got they got saved in a methodist church a while back there but realized they were poured upon and that wasn't scriptural and they didn't realize it was unscriptural and so they want to get it right and in the ensuing future they're going to get baptized here in our church to get it right and so we have to scripturally baptize that person scriptural baptism is immersion scriptural baptism is saying before you get baptized i identify jesus christ as death burial and resurrection and I, and, and I identify with the local New Testament church, the doctrine of that church, and what it advocates. So we give every person a new member's, new member's packet. In the new member's packet, we have our statement of faith. We declare our doctrine. I tell them specifically, please read this before I go over this. I give them a statement which summarizes what the Bible says about baptism. And I talk about alien baptism and all these types of things there. And so we give that to them. We have to understand, listen, I cannot take a baptism from someone that was immersed in a Pentecostal church or someone that's immersed in a Protestant church, where in that Protestant church you're most likely advocating a wrong Bible version, and they're advocating, if you would, something weird about evangelism, or worse yet, their doctrines are wrong in terms of, the, uh, of soteriology or salvation because they may be Calvinistic in their tendency. I cannot take that baptism. Or worse yet, if they're, if they're coming from a, a, a Pentecostal church where they believe that the temporary sign gifts still exist and we can speak in tongues, listen, they need to understand we do not speak in tongues, and the tongues that they're advocating are not foreign languages as the Bible speaks about. Those gifts cease when we got all the Word of God. I said, I can't take those kind of... And the, the person said, well, you know, you, you have the wrong view about baptism. I said, no, sir, I don't have the wrong view about ba- baptism. I got the full view about baptism. I got the biblical view of baptism. You need to get on board where we're at with baptism. So the person went on, just kept, kept arguing, arguing back and forth. And here's what I'm trying to say tonight. We're not going to change the church to fit the culture. I said, we're not going to change the church to fit the culture. 
You see, you don't understand. No, we have to understand something. We need to get our lives changed by the presence of God and not put God on a new car thinking new car's going to change the church. We have this generation of millennial preachers out there promoting idea days. I know this is going to get out there. I'm going to get some hate mail on this. That's fine. They sit around and they talk about new carts for the ark of God. They sit around. And now the latest thing I heard about the latest idea day, they put some Southern Baptists in that group. You say, are we the same as Southern Baptists? No, we're not the same as Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists advocate women preachers. Women preachers are unbiblical. They advocate wrong Bible versions. In fact, in some of their seminaries, they do not believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. They don't believe the, they believe the Word of God is error. I mean, just go on and on and on, all kinds of nonsense. And the biggest thing coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention right now is this whole movement towards Calvinism. I've got books on it written by their own men that tell it, they're trying to fight that within their movement. But one of the worst things about the Southern Baptist Convention, if I could just tell you this tonight, is they are a hierarchy. The convention is over the church. There is no such thing in the Bible about hierarchies. We're not part of a hierarchy. That's why our Baptist brethren have always been independent. We're not part of a denomination. We're not part of a hierarchy. We are independent. We're autonomous local churches. That's why when you look at the word Baptist, B means we believe that the Bible is all the word of God. We believe in the authority of the word of God. A stands for the autonomy of the local New Testament church. We're not going to be part of a hierarchy. We're not going to follow a hierarchy. Why? What does that mean? If you're part of a hierarchy, that means your missions money has to go to the Southern Baptist Convention and they determine to what, what apostate organization that money's going to go to. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen here. Or they're going to say something like this. Well, we're going to go down to the Rick Warren purpose-driven church marketing methods to kind of promote the gospel. Well, that's fine. The Southern Baptist Church and the Baptist Churches know one thing. Daily in the temple from house to house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. I'm saying tonight, we understand something as Paul did as he preached the gospel in the synagogue. He went from house to house in Corinth. He finally told those people as they opposed him. He said, your blood be upon your own heads. I am free from your blood. And I'm telling you tonight, as a congregation, we have the blood of the people, the city of San Leandro and Oakland and all the surrounding communities where we're from to get the gospel of those people. We're not going to condescend ourselves to new methods in order to please the crowd there. So new methods, here's another one. I was going to get into this with a person this morning. I didn't have time. We believe the Lord's table is closed, not open. It's a local church ordinance. If, it, if, I, if I practice an open Lord's table and you come from another church and you've got sin in your life because you didn't want to go back to your church, how can I, I'm not your pastor, how can I discipline? I can't discipline that individual. They're not part of this church. They don't believe the same thing. Dude, listen, we have closed Lord's table that belongs to local. Listen, that's been a Baptist distinctive from day one. And listen, we've had some men in our pulpit, I will tell you right now, they've taken a stand like Sam Davidson on that matter because many of those men who went off in the Baptist Bible Fellowship and changed their doctrine from closed to open, listen, they're in open contention. Those same men who've gone to open Lord's, the Lord's table, here's what they're doing. Those men have now opened up the floodgate. They've changed their Bible version. They've changed their method evangelism. They stand in the pulpit, open shirt, being cool to the congregation, and the churches have diminished and declined and decline and decline and diminish to there's nobody inside the churches anymore. You say, man, that's hard preaching. No, it's biblical preaching. Religion and convenience is when the Levites are in the background when they need to be in the foreground carrying the presence of God. The Levites knew they said nothing. The Levites knew they did nothing. They carried the ark of God in a new car. But notice we see the hauling. Notice the handling. And I have to tell you, man, it was exciting. You change your worship methods, you change, you change your evangelism, you change everything. Oh, that's cool. 
Yeah, we're going to reach the cool generation there. And so everybody got all excited in verse 9. And Dave and all Israel played before God with all their might and with all their singing, with their hearts and psalteries and timbrels and cymbals and with trumpets and blah, blah, blah. They did all that. They got all excited. And then something interesting came. They came to a threshing floor along the way. They had to pass to a threshing floor of a man by the name of Nation or Shinon. Now, the threshing floor, as you read this passage, was uneven ground. It was rocky. And somehow the oxen that were carrying it, the Bible says specifically here in this passage that the oxen stumbled. Uzzah saw the ark of God kind of going like this. One way, this way. One way, this way. He saw it start to teeter-totter and it looked like it was going to fall off. So Uzzah thought, well, you know, no big deal. Numbers 4.15 says, thou shalt not touch the holy things. And he puts one arm out to try to hold it and bolster it up there. He tries to stop it. And immediately notice the passage here. As he did so, the Bible says in verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark and there he died before God. You said, well, man, that's a pretty mean situation. Uzzah was presumptuous on the handling of the ark. Uzzah represents the carnal nature when he desires to control how much of God's presence we want in our life. He didn't want God's presence to come to him God's way. He wanted God's presence to come to him Uzzah's way. Uzzah represents a carnal nature that wants to be in control instead of God being... Hey, this is the typical Baptist church. Hey, look up here. The typical Baptist church, and this is how someone's going to approach revival meetings. We're not careful. We're going to come there and cross our arms and listen to Pastor Norris preach or Pastor Fong preach. doesn't matter who or whoever may come to the pulpit there. They're going to listen to the preaching and we're going to put our arm out like Uzzah. We're going to go like this. Stop. You cross my territory. Don't go there. It doesn't matter. It's the word of God. It doesn't matter. It's the same. Lord, we're going to say stop. We're going to put our hand out because we think it's going to fall upon us and hurt. Listen, God's presence in our life was never meant to hurt us. God's presence in our life was to make us holy. And so he puts his arm out. We put our arms and we want to stop the presence of God. God's presence is not controlled by man. God's presence is to control it. Listen, why do we need God's presence? Because without God's presence, we have no boundaries. Without God's presence, we know nothing about the grace of God. Listen, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Listen, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Listen, this evening, we need more of the presence of God so that we can walk the way God wants us to live. God's presence does not need us to hold it. God's presence is there to hold us. Notice in verse, verse 10, verse 9, the oxen stumbled. Chapter 6, verse 6 in Second Samuel says, the oxen shook it. Listen, worldly methods will eventually reveal they're shaky at best. Worldly methods reveal they always have to be propped up. Worldly methods always tell us that they need man to intervene. They want man's involvement instead of God's involvement. Once the ark goes on the cart, it isn't long if somebody wants to touch it. Somebody wants to get involved. They want to monkey with God's presence. They want to alter God's presence. And that's what happens. Somebody lives in sin. They get farther and farther back in the, in the, in the auditorium. They get farther and farther back from God. The reason why they do this, not because they're tired. A lot of times it's because they don't want to hear about their sin. And it's more convenient for them to sit as far away from the fire as possible. I'm going to tell you something. When I got saved, and I still do this. When I got saved, God impressed on my heart. I need to get a close to fire as possible because I need the fire to purge some things out of my life there. So notice the perturbing mayhem, verses 10 to 12. There was death. Why was God angry? Because they violated Numbers 4.15. For every, every situation we have, there's always a Bible verse that will clarify what happened there. The irreverent and presumptuous actions of Uzzah led to his untimely death and stopped the celebration. Listen, More than Uzzah died. 
More than Uzzah died. Watch what happens here. Look up here. When Uzzah did that, the celebration, verse 9, stopped to a halt. You want to kill the church? Monkey around with the presence of God. You want to kill a ministry? Monkey around with the presence of God. You want to hurt your family? Stop having your devotions. You want to be a detriment to the work of God? Put your hand on touch the holy things of God when you're not supposed to touch the holy things of God. I'm saying tonight, that's what happened. Everything had to stop. There was death, but notice something else here. There was dissatisfaction. Listen, you read the, you read the chronicles of history, and God has to do this over and over again. Nadab and Abihu, two of the very sons of Aaron, they decided after they got instruction about the right kind of fire to have in the altar. The Bible tells us in Numbers, in Numbers, in Leviticus, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 10, where they, they brought down this strange fire, and the Lord had to send fire to destroy them. We read about that many years later after this incident, where Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to change the mood and giving there and they, they withheld from God. They stole from God and they lied against the Lord and, and God had to do something like that against Ananias and Sapphira. There was death, but there was dissatisfaction. Notice verse 11 and 12. David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzi. You know what that really means if you study it? David was mad at God. Well, God, you stopped my party. What? God, you stopped my son. God had to stop David to realize he was bringing the ark of God. I guess he had a fervent ambition, but he changed along the way. And thank you. This is all about David. It's not about David. It's about God. When our decisions and everything we're doing is about us, we've changed what we're doing. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto myself. David was upset with God. David was gun shy of God. Look at verse 12. The Bible says, and David was afraid of God that day, saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home? He was frustrated. He was angry. Everything stopped as soon as Uzzah hit the ground. They realized he was dead and they were not going to revive him. Hey, listen, you know what happened there? Red light. Red light. When Uzzah hit the ground, it was red light. Stop. Stop monkeying around with God's presence. Stop taking God's presence lightly. Stop realizing that you can change the methods and change the script. You're not going to change the word of God. Listen, that's the same thing people keep going on with saying, well, we can get to heaven through good works. No, you cannot. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration. Listen tonight, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. New methods, worldly methods are, new, are, are putting the presence of God upon our ark. We need to stop. God says to stop right there. Red light. God gave David and Israel a red light to stop them. Listen, Jesus gives a red light to his churches. Jesus tells the churches who are trying to go about doing the work of God the wrong way, the mission of being a true church. Instead, they're going a different way. Listen, he puts a stop sign there. He puts a red light there. Read about it there in the book of Revelation. He said, stop church at Ephesus. He said, stop church at Pergamos. He said, stop church of Thyatira. He said, red light church of Sardis. He said, red light church of Laodicea. And the message goes on and on and on. My good friend, Dr. Tom, uh, what's, his, what's his friend, Brother Farrell over there in, in Cincinnati. What's his first name? Dan Farrell. Great booming voice preacher preached with him in the in the Philippines. Brother Farrell showed me pictures. He had led his church over there to go through the old Asia Minor, and he showed me the progressive mo- mo- uh, movement of how the Church at Ephesus went from being a fundamental Baptist church to where by the third century apostasy had set in. They had, he showed us the fountain where they where they baptized people by immersion, and by the third century because apostasy had set in, and pastors who decided to use the new cart by bringing forth the presence of God. He showed me their little baptistry where now they were ba- baptizing babies inside of a little. Uh, a revised fountain there. The apostasy there. And there's nothing left of the church at Ephesus. Jesus tells every church that doesn't stop and doesn't listen. He said, if you don't repent, I will take the candlestick from them out your midst. And listen, Jesus has removed quite a few candlesticks along the way. Jesus gives a red light to our individual spiritual lives and we're living and walking with him in the wrong way. 
failed attempt. I'm glad to tell you, go to chapter 15 very quickly. We need to close. Would you notice the faithful alteration? Last thing we read about David there, he's afraid of God that day, saying, how should I bring the ark of God home to me? And it says he brought not the ark of God home to him. But notice in verse chapter 15 through the whole chapter, we see a faithful change, a faithful alteration, a faithful correction. Listen, I'm thankful. David, here's why he's a man after God's own heart. When he messed up, he got right. When he sinned, he wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. When he messed up, he got right with God. He was transparent. He just said, I, I don't want to live that way. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to have that kind of testimony. I don't want to live that kind of life. And so notice, David gives attention about getting this right. Notice in First Chronicles 15, instead of red light, we see green light. Go, David. Go, David. Green light, David. You can go. So notice the several things. First of all, I'm going back to chapter 13, the last two verses. Notice the contentment of Obadiah. Now, David didn't know what to do. He was a frustrated man of God at that moment. He was concerned about what he's doing. So he takes the ark of God. He looks at the men that are carrying, that, that put in the new cart. He said, okay, guys, carefully lift it up. We're not sure who. And he looked, he looked there and the nearest home in that location there as they're going along the way was the home of a man by the name of Obadiah. Obedidim was a Gittite. Obedidim was also a Levite. And Obedidim, he said, hey, Obedidim, we're going to put, we're going to put the ark of God in your house. He thought, we'll just park it there until we figure out what to do. And something interesting happened. They wanted to see and observe for three months or whatever time period what would happen to Obedidim by putting the ark of God there. Now I'm thankful Obedidim, as far as we can tell between the lines, I believe Obedidim went back to Numbers. I believe he went back to Exodus and he started reading his Bible again to determine what am I supposed to do with the ark of God? And something very interesting, as the ark of God rested there, Obadidim had reverence, not presumption. And the ark of God, verse 14, remained with the family of Obadidim in his house for three months. And notice this, the Lord blessed the house of Obadidim and all that we had, all that he had. And all I want to simply tell you tonight is we see the contentment of Obadidim. Obadidim, man, of all the people and all the Israel, millions and millions of people, nobody was a more happier camper. Nobody was a happier believer than Obadidim. It's like, hey, keep the ark of God here. God's blessing is on my life. I'm having an outpouring, a rainfall of God's blessings on my life. Just keep it here. Hey, how many could testify tonight, a Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the word of God, and in his law does he meditate both day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and whatsoever he doeth, God will bless and prosper. Listen, tonight, we see something very center. The presence of God came in the home of Obedidim. Obedidim changed his priorities. Obedidim changed his practices. Obedidim changed everything about it. He got in love with Jesus on a whole new level. And God blessed him. Hey, I wonder tonight, could God visit your home tonight? Then we see the compliant operation. Notice in verses 2 to 13. Chapter 15 now. In verse 1 it says, And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared his place for the ark of God. And he pitched for it a tent. Now he's starting to get it right now because he understands what he's supposed to do. And he said in verse 2, Then David said, he didn't ask the people's opinion. Now he's going the right way. None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them has the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all of Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord into his place, which he had prepared for it. Now you scroll down a little bit further. 
Verse 11 and 15, and David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab. And he said to them, ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord, God of Israel, unto the place that I prepared for it. For because ye did not it at the first, so they knew what to do, but they decided to stay in the background. Hey, guys, you're, you're in a spiritual place of spiritual influence. You're a staff member. You're a deacon, you're a Sunday school teacher. Don't be in the background waiting to see what's going on. Be at the forefront to lead the work out. Hey, listen, if anybody needs to be at the altar these next few nights, it needs to be us. We need to be there for God. We need to be there for our own spiritual life, for our own families. There. He said, now you guys get it right there. And he said, you didn't do it at the first. And God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the order. By the way, that goes for every father in the room tonight. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereof as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. There was a compliant operation. Listen, they realized they messed up. They had to have a leader to stand up and tell them what they needed to do. It wasn't easy because, listen, David had embarrassed himself by the first incident. And how many are so proud that we embarrass ourselves? Here's what our attitude is. Well, you know, I don't want to be up there. I don't want to do that. You know, I just, I look like a fool. Well, you know what? The Apostle Paul said, we're fools for Christ's sake. You're going to be a leader. Sometimes you've got to eat the dirt. You're going to be a leader. Sometimes you've got to condescend yourself and be humble before God. Say, listen, I'll take, I'll, I'll take responsibility for it. And David took full responsibility that he messed up spiritually. And one man died because of it. So David got this right. He went to the Levites and said, guys, we've got to get this right. And we see a compliant operation. Listen, the Levites got in order because everyone had watched what was going on in the house of Obedinam. God kept pouring out his blessings and his blessings and his blessings upon a man who served God and gave his all for Jesus and gave his all for God. And they said, listen, we want that for all of Israel. We want that in Jerusalem. We see the compliant operation. But along the way, notice verse 14. We see the cleansing of the officers. So the priests and the Levites, they sanctify themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And all I want to say with you about that tonight, listen, if we want the very presence of God, it begins by us sanctifying ourselves and confessing our sins and getting right with God and saying, God, I want more of your presence and whatever is hindering that. Lord, take it out of me tonight, please. Then notice in verses 25 to 28, we see a consecrated outflow. The ark of God's removed. They take the ark of God in verse 25 out of the house of Edom with joy. In verse 26, they're off, they're making offerings, seven bullocks and seven rams. David is appropriate clothed and they're singing and there's an entourage of people. And verse 28 says, thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet and with trumpets. And he says, with cymbals, making noise, with psalteries and with harps. It was a wonderful celebration time. They got it right the first time and they got their fundamentals right. And they decided, listen, the new, putting the ark of God in a new cart is not the right thing. And the Levites, as they carried it, they brought it to the, they brought it to the tent that David erected. And they said, glory to God. The presence of God is here once again. So notice the final application as we're done. We go to chapter 14, 13, red light. New carts, red light. Putting out your hand and touching the ark because of stumbling, red light. Go to chapter 15, we see a humble David. We see a contrite David, green light. All go, David. It's all go. The ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. You and I are to carry the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to every home. That's just a great thought there. We're to carry the presence of God, the good news. Because remember, what the practice inside the Holy of Holies represented a picture of the salvation 
purchased by Jesus Christ. And just as the Levites were to carry the ark on their shoulders. And by the way, every one of us are kings and priests, the Bible says. As kings and priests, we also were to bear the burden of the ark of God. And to take it from home to home and family to family and city to city and getting the gospel to people. Red light, doing God's will and work the wrong way. Green light, doing God's will and work the right way. You're approaching the intersection. Red light or green light. Father, tonight we thank you for the study this evening about the presence of God. Lord, my heart's desires are more than anything else that just all of us crave your presence. We want more of you, not less of you. And honestly, Lord, there's so many things in the the social media. And this pragmatic mentality. The end justifies the means. Yet I'm reminded, Lord, there's nothing new under the sun. And it could be tonight, not just on a church level, individual level, Lord, Maybe if there's been an absence of your presence and your power, could it be this neglect? Or could it be we're trying to carry the ark of God on a new card? I pray this evening for a holy church, a contrite church, a pure church. A joyous church, a happy church, a holy church tonight. A church, as Paul writes about in Ephesians 5, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Peter said judgment must begin in the house of God. As we prepare for our revival meetings, Lord, I think all of us can get closer to you than we really are. I think all of us need to do like Elijah did. We need to rebuild broken altars. I think all of us, Lord, need to revisit, Lord, the cobwebs that have collected around our desks and those places where we used to read your word and pray. And if we were to take a survey tonight, I wonder how many of us just really have had a rough one week and one month. Our prayer time has suffered. And tonight, I pray that we'd be like David and like those Levites in the house of Israel. They humble themselves and said, you know what, we, we need to do the right thing the right way. Tonight, you've spoken. You've shown us, reminded us as a church that doing God's work, worshiping God with wrong methods leads to the wrong results. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and see if there be any wicked way. Lord, take us into your pathway, into your presence tonight. May the fullness of your presence be felt. And could it be tonight that someone's here who does not know Christ as their Savior? They need to get saved. May tonight be the night they call upon the Lord to save them. As we give the invitation, Lord, may there be no delay. May we come with urgency instead of moving in our hearts of doing the right thing. We commit this to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? If you need to come, join me at the holy altar tonight. If you need to come with God, if you need more of God's presence tonight, I think we need more of God's presence. You join me tonight. Let's find our way. We need to find our place tonight like those, those Levites that he said. Now, you said, said it forward. And let's, let's take some time. Nothing else. Hey, if everything's right, that's good. But I think maybe we should take some time tonight to pray for revival.
Would you come tonight and humble yourself to pray for revival? The holy presence of God. Letting God work. To put the ark of God on a new card. Nobody thought anything about it until Uzzah put his hand out and said, and tried to stop it from falling. He tried to manhandle God. We can't manhandle God. We need God to handle us. God doesn't need us to control him. He needs to be in control of us. We don't need to be in control of our situation. We need to let God be in control of the situation. Let's have complete faith in the Lord and trust in him. It's better to put your trust in the Lord than put your trust in man. It could be our faith is floundering. It's been a little fickle. And I remind you tonight, without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's beyond his place tonight. The altars are open. The Lord's here. His presence is here. He invites us to come. Would you come tonight? Spend some time in his presence. Let's get our revive. Let's get our devotion times revived and our prayer times revived. Not according to how we see it, but according to how God dictates it today. Let's be careful tonight of the holy things of God. <clears throat> Father, tonight we come to you this evening recognizing we're not to be flippant and flaky, for that matter, about the presence of God. Please help our church, Lord, to Desire and crave your presence this week. Brother Norris's services are over. First thing in the morning tomorrow, he's going to board the plane from Nashville. He'll be with us in 24 hours from now. Our services start. I pray we'd want more of your presence. More of you. The rejoicing that David and all of Israel had, let it be upon us. And then, Lord, I didn't say it tonight, but... I think about how as David celebrated that he did things right. There were some who were blinded to the blessings, who rejected it. And I realize that's going to happen. But it doesn't have to happen tonight. Lord, I pray this evening that the Spirit would just have control, uh, directing in us our thoughts, our heart, desires. Be glorified tonight as we see the red lights of Scripture, but also the green lights. Help us to follow the green lights along the way. Dismiss it with your blessing. Bless the families tonight. Help every family to have a wonderful time together. And, uh, Lord, help our children and young people as they get to school tomorrow to do very well. Help our adults who travel to work and projects. Some may even have to go out of town and have other things going on. I pray that you give them journeys, mercies, and work in their hearts. They bring their Bibles with them and trust in God. Work in those who are here tonight whose bodies are infirm with illnesses and sicknesses. And, uh, Lord, really not feeling really good tonight. I pray that you touch your bodies. Help many of our members who could not be here tonight and they're, uh, who are very sick, who are battling illnesses and sicknesses and touch their infirm bodies, Lord. Make them well. We pray for the fire there up there in the North Bay. We pray for rain that will quench that fire, eradicate the bad air, but put out the fire. We pray for the building of lives. We pray for an open door you'd give us. And I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but an open door that will get us past red tape and bureaucracy of being able to try to minister to hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of families there. Father, dismiss your blessing. We thank you tonight for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.